Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, SDS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime, and they keep on coming. You've got two new faces today. Uh, a big possible development in the case of missing Colorado mom, Suzanne Morphew. We have not discussed this case on STS, but uh, it is a very big case uh, nationally garnering a lot of attention. Uh, just this past week, a prosecutor working on the case announced in open court that investigators suspect they know the location of her body, which I guess is a mixed bag of news that would imply, obviously, she's no longer with us, uh, but maybe they're moving ahead in the investigation. The question obviously uh, remains, uh, where is she and who is responsible? Uh, best guests here tonight, and they are good ones. You've got Aya Gruber. She's an expert on criminal law and procedure, violence against women and critical theory, before joining the USC Gould School of Law faculty, which she just did about five days ago, uh, she taught at the University of Colorado Law School, where she was the Ira C. Roth Gerber Professor of Constitutional Law and Criminal Justice. And she was just featured on the 48-hour show about the Suzanne Morphew case, a good, good episode if you have not seen it. The man who looks like he's in a law office, that is Jeremy Lowe. He's a former Colorado State public defender turned Colorado Springs criminal defense attorney. He has aggressively represented thousands of clients in Colorado in all aspects of criminal defense, domestic violence, and personal injury. And prior to his legal practice, this caught my attention as a former uh, Fox News guy in D.C., Jeremy worked in politics in D.C., where he was able to work for not one, but two United States presidents. We'll ask him about that shortly. And then Dr. J.P. Garrison, the man with possibly the best voice on STS. He earned a PsyD in clinical psychology from the Georgia School of Professional Psychology and has been cited for his expertise uh, in psychology in numerous media outlets, including Business Insider, Forbes, Vice, Huffington Post, Yahoo News, Fatherly, and of course now STS. Uh, he's also, I love this, studied uh, the language and culture of South Korea for over a decade and has his own YouTube channel and big uh, fan base, and it's called Dr. G Explained. So uh, thank you to all of you. Uh, quick reminder, follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. We're a podcast, STS. You can also listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can support us on Patreon, become a YouTube member, hit that like button, as my now nine-year-old daughter coming home from sleepaway camp tomorrow says, it gets the algorithm chugging and the merch stores open and I am working on getting a hat. So, uh, Jeremy, who are the two presidents? Everyone wants to know before we get started. Uh, President Clinton and President Obama. So I'm a Democrat. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, yeah, well, that's interesting. President Clinton yeah. and uh, one with zero scandal, one with a never ending cascade of scandals. But, never uh, ending. But that's why we love him, right? Yeah, but uh, we won't go into that right now. But we will do a quick recap. So for those of you who do not know, and this is a very complicated case with a million different tentacles, but Suzanne Morphew, she goes missing on Mother's Day 2020 in the early morning of May 10th. Uh, 
Barry, her husband, left his home just outside of a Salida. Am I saying that? Do I, is that pronounced correctly? Salida, yes. right? It's right? Salida. There you go. So just outside of Salida, Colorado. Uh, and he went to a job site 150 miles away in Broomfield, Colorado. Uh, after he left the house, as kids do on Mother's Day, the two daughters who were out of town on a camping trip started texting their mom, Happy Mother's Day, and got no response. Uh, Mallory, one of the daughters, uh, she informs her father that they're unable to reach Suzanne. Uh, Barry says he finally reaches a neighbor and he asks Suzanne uh, if the mountain bike is at their home. Um, I'm going to stop it right there, Aya. Um, is, as you understand it, is this kind of how uh, the day started to play out uh, back on that fateful Mother's Day of 2020? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I probably should mention that Barry did call his daughters fairly early on in the morning to say, you know, have you heard from mom? Um, you know, so it, it wasn't complete radio silence from him, um, but it was sort of throughout the day that the daughters and Barry are noticing that this is Mother's Day and usually Suzanne answers her phone and she didn't. Um, and that's sort of when he asked the neighbor to go check on her and, you know, specifically to see if her bike is there. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy, I'm going to have you bounce in here. Sure. What caught my attention and, you know, reading up on the case, and I did watch the 48 hours, is he calls a neighbor and he doesn't necessarily say, you know, is my wife there? But he very specifically asks about this mountain bike, which is found uh, a short time later, sort of on the side of a cliff. Um, you're a defense attorney and you were a prosecutor. Does that is that interesting to you in any way that maybe he's shaping a narrative early on? Yes. And it's you know, probably the worst thing that he could be doing is, you know, saying, have you, have you seen the bike? Mm -hmm. And the other interesting thing is he's not really in the area at this time. He's gone up to the Denver Metro area for a job that was supposed to start essentially the next day is what the allegations are. So have you seen my wife's bike? And he's left the area for a project that starts, you know, 24 hours Later, it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would leave so early. But, yeah. you know, there are a lot of things in this case that don't make sense. And I'm sure we'll get into them. And there are, there are so many errors on an inept by an inept prosecution that it, it is shocking. This case, and I'm sure you'll get into it, has taken so many twists and turns. Yeah. And it, it just keeps on getting worse. Um, for everybody involved. Yeah, and uh, I love it because uh, Jeremy is building up to suspense, but there are um, more than a few aha moments or oh my God, or as I guess uh, we would say in Surviving the Survivor, some oy vey moments. Um, and, and we will get into uh, all those. Uh, Dr. G, I'm going to have you explain this. So Melinda Mormon, the sister of Suzanne Morphew, um, she received... Um, a text from Suzanne two days before she went missing. And according to Melinda, this text message was quote unquote boiling over with anger toward uh, Barry. And it read in part, and this is a direct quote. Um, He's also been abusive emotionally and physically. I feel more angry now, uh, anger at what I've allowed. Um, you're the psychologist. What does that tell you uh, about the rocky state of their relationship? Uh, you know, well, it, 
it tells us a lot. I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into to more of it. There's also a lot of history there as far as things that were caught on this recording pen and some other stuff. But basically, it, it's it's it shows that if if that's in fact true, if he was physically and emotionally abusive, that shows a level of someone who is able to perpetrate some pretty heinous heinous acts that as far as I know, haven't been talked about. Otherwise, I don't think he's ever was ever arrested for domestic violence or anything like that. So it does show that the capacity to engage in that shows somebody that could potentially do something worse. So that's always concerning when that background is there. And I meant to mention off the top. So uh, now retired FBI agent Johnny Grusing, he's worked this case and he's become a friend of the show. Um, If you guys didn't see it, I did surviving my biggest case with him. And it was about a uh, serial killer, Scott Kimball. But I did reach out um, to Johnny and uh, Johnny, and he's got a dry sense of humor, uh, no commented me um, because of what I'm about to talk about next. Um, but just wrapping up sort of the day of um, Barry, according to reports, he doesn't head home immediately. Um, he drops off a shovel and some other tools uh, keep in mind, though, he was a landscaper, but still, anytime you hear missing woman and shovel, those aren't the, you know, the, the, the best coupling of words in a sentence that you want to hear. But so he drops off his uh, tools for his coworkers, uh, where he'd book rooms for them again in Broomfield, uh, 150 miles away or so. And then he begins driving home. So he didn't head home immediately, immediately that day. But um, Aya, back to you um, now kind of fast forwarding to the latest on this case. Uh, Deputy District Attorney uh, Mark Herbert said in open court that investigators now suspect they know the location of Suzanne's body. I mean, what what does that say to you um, as an attorney and someone you know who's interested in, in, in this case and been looking at it for a long time? Well, I don't know how much you want me to spoiler alert what you're about to get into. You, you, um, you can go for it. Cause we're going to we're going to kind of circle around. So it's it's totally your call. So there are some pieces of physical evidence that, you know, both the police in sort of focusing almost relentlessly on Barry Morphew as a suspect to their own detriment, because I think it's going to be extremely difficult to resurrect this case. And they're being sued for $15 million. Um, So, I mean, that sort of, you know, I'm not the psychologist, but that sort of cognitive bias, that certainty error sort of like had them relentlessly focused. Well, they had to deal with certain pieces of evidence um, that, you know, were, were tricky for them. And one of the pieces of evidence was that there was basically no DNA, blood evidence, or any sort of evidence that physically linked Barry to a murder, right? So then they had to come up with, um, you know, some theories of how he nonetheless committed a murder. And one of them we're going to get into was that he used a tranquilizer, right? And that wouldn't leave any blood. Um, You know, one of the things that came to light that was so damning, and I'm sure we're going to get into it later, was the very early dismissing of what I think was an incredibly credible kidnapping theory, Hmm. especially given the DNA evidence, right? And so I think that was something that you know, still to this day is going on. Now, that's not completely inconsistent with there being a body nearby, right? They could still kidnap and then the body could be nearby. But I think it would go a long way to dispelling what I think from the beginning was a credible theory, which is that somebody nabbed her, 
right? Either while she was on her bike or, or more likely um, from her car. Um, and so if they can find the body, it's nearby, they can find some evidence linking Barry to the body or reconstruct you know, that scene and it's consistent with some of the car and cell phone pinging evidence, that's going to be really big because I think the, the, the big problematic thing for them was that there's this completely plausible alternate theory of how she goes missing. Yeah. And uh, what I is alluding to, which we'll get to again, a very windy road, this case is, but um, some male DNA is found and it's a, we, we don't have the identity of who it belongs to, but they do know that it's connected to some prior sexual assaults. Um, well, actually, they do know. Oh, um, they do. And okay. that person lawyered up, uh, but they had to do some phone calls to Arizona to find out who that person was. Um, but we can get into that. Okay. Can, I, can I just kind of chime in about the body hop issue? Right. Yeah, hop right in. Well, Jeremy, yeah, give me one sex. I just want to. So I was saying, uh, you know, once it, if they can locate this body, then they can possibly get some DNA evidence off of it. But this um, assistant district attorney says, and this is a quote here, and I'll have you react, Jeremy. She's in a, quote, very difficult spot. Um, and he goes on to say, we actually have more than just a feeling and the sheriff's office is continuing to look for Mrs. Morphew's body. So with that, go ahead, Jeremy. OK, so this is not new information. They said this a year ago and they said that they're waiting for the snow to melt before they could get to the body. Mm -hmm. Now, I found it ironic that they were saying literally last week that they were having they know where the body is and they're having a hard time getting to it. We literally were able to get bodies from the Titanic at the same time that this district attorney's office is saying that we know where the body is and we're having a hard time getting to it. And it comes at a really interesting time. So Barry Morphew's attorney, Iris Eton, filed a motion. And the motion was for the case to be dis dismissed with prejudice. So where are we at right now, right? Where we're at right now is the prosecution who probably should never have filed the case. And I can give a little background on that if you'd like. Um, yeah, yeah. The prosecutor I, I, go, go ahead, but I'd like to know why you think they so royally screwed this up and why they're so inept. I'm sure you have more than a couple of reasons, but continue on. Yes. Um, so the prosecution filed the case. The case was eventually dismissed by, by the by the court and by the prosecutor without prejudice. So as I have mentioned, there's now this $15 million lawsuit. So what, what comes with a $15 million lawsuit where you're suing a hundred different people to get this $15 million? Well, when you sue somebody, right? Like Barry Morphew's doing or a hundred people, each one of those people gets to do a deposition, right? they get to defend that lawsuit and their themselves individually. So Iris Eton is now asking for the case to be dismissed with prejudice. And for your listeners, what's the difference between dismissed with prejudice and dismissed without prejudice? If a case like the Morphew case, as it currently stands, is dismissed without prejudice, that means at some point down the road, 
the prosecution could refile the case. If a case is dismissed with prejudice, then the prosecution can never refile the case. Jeopardy has attached. Um, and if they were essentially to discover new evidence, the case has been dismissed with prejudice and Mr. Morphew could never be charged. So this prosecutor is saying, we, we think we know where the body is or we know where the body is when Iris Eton is on the other side saying, we want this case dismissed with prejudice. And so there's just so many angles, so many pieces of this chess match going on. Um, and I say chess match very loosely because what's happening here is Iris Eton and Barry Morphew's attorneys are playing chess and this prosecution office is playing checkers. And yeah. it's, you know, it's absolutely crazy that um, they're bringing up now that they might know where the body is. When they brought it up a year ago and Sarah said they were waiting for the snow to melt. And, you know, we have some of the best outdoorsmen in the world located here in Colorado. If they know where our body is, they can get to that body. That's really interesting. And I was just going to come to Dr. G, but Dr. G, hang on for one sec. This question is waiting for you. Um, Aya, we are covering, um, we just did a show on it the other night, uh, Corey Richin. She is a Utah mom accused of poisoning um, her husband, Eric Richins, and she's sitting in jail right now uh, in Park City, Utah. But she filed a civil suit, and the lawyers were saying that was a horrendous mistake um, who we had on the show because as to what Jeremy was just saying, she can now be deposed and everything that she's deposed about can be used in the criminal case against her. Um, is there any similarity here? Um, is, is Barry Morphew, I mean, Jeremy's talking about playing chess versus checkers, but is he walking into a trap potentially? Normally, I would say uh, until, so this is kind of going on to what Jeremy said about dismiss with prejudice. Until your criminal case is dead and buried, do not make any statements. They're not going to help you. They're not going to be good for you, especially statements under oath. Shut up, right? Like that is like the rule of thumb. It's the rule of shutting up. In this particular case, Barry has already made 40-something uncounseled statements to everybody who would listen, just kind of like spouting off theories. And they've been uh, proven to be key pieces of why, you know, there was an arrest warrant, there was an arrest affidavit, and why the public now comes to, to suspect him of this monstrous offense. Um, you know, with the civil suit, he'll have his attorneys you know, he'll be in a completely different position. So I totally hear what you're saying that you never, as a defense attorney, want a client making statements, much, much less than statements under oath before uh, a criminal trial. In this case, um, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe Jeremy would know better, but I, I don't know the probability of success of this civil rights case, I'd say probably it's pretty low, um, but I'm not sure how much the statements are going to hurt just given what's out there. Jeremy, who's he suing? And uh, to Aya's point, will he get that $50 million uh, in, a, in a settlement, do you think, or a verdict? So he's suing essentially 
every prosecutor, every deputy, every everybody with governmental immunity that could potentially um, have touched the case, they're suing them. And so here's the problem. As a defense attorney, it's not the one statement that buries you, buries your client. It's the it's the first statement. And then there's a contradiction with the second statement and then the third statement and then the fourth statement. And what happens is, is when you're when you're presenting a case to a jury, the jury is really looking at credibility and truthfulness. And so when somebody is giving a deposition, they may not remember certain facts that they said to a law enforcement officer two years ago, even if they're true, your memory changes, how you perceive a story changes. Components are left out or they're added. And so they're going to have, the prosecution is going to have enough contradictions. And hopefully Dr. G can also kind of talk about this a little bit more, but um, you're, you're going to have different versions of events, even if you, you saw the event and you remember it clearly. And those little contradictions are going to be what shows to a jury that you may not be telling the truth, even if you are, right? Mm-hmm. Or your story doesn't make sense, even when it does. And so- Yeah. Can I add something to that yeah. after you're done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, depositions are, and statements are the worst thing that a client can ever, ever do. And- they they want to prosecute him. This everybody wants this man prosecuted, whether he's guilty or innocent. They have you know jumped to conclusions, and they need to build a case around it. And anytime he tells a story to the police, and then tells a story to some civil lawyer, which can be used against him, it doesn't just because your case is dismissed doesn't mean that it's gone. And so. They can order transcripts from every one of these depositions. It's the biggest mistake. And I do think he's actually making, um, opening himself up to prosecution. And that's why they want it dismissed with prejudice. Let, let me just say a couple of things on that in Barry's defense. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to defend Barry, but, and Dr. G, I think you could attest to this. Most people cannot imagine that somebody who says something either wild during an interrogation or inculpatory, right? Or even a confession could be innocent. When people see police interrogations, they always go in with a mindset of guilt. So it's always consistent with guilt, consistent with guilt. And I don't know how much we're going to get into the substance of Barry's 40 statements, but for example, the chipmunk statement that became, you know, a big thing. So basically what the police had said was given his cell phone records, when he got home, he was running around the house and he was chasing Suzanne around the house with this dark gun to tranquilize her and, you know, kill her eventually. Um, And, you know, they confronted him with it. Now it turns out that that cell phone information was completely bogus. He would have to be going 50 miles an hour through walls you know, to, to me that, but of course he spelts out, well, maybe I, you know, maybe it was some chipmunks, right? Yeah. Same thing with a very low, uh, valuable uh, data point from his car that the forensic 
people said, you know, th this, this GPS point that's somewhat near the helmet is very low value, but use it in the interrogation right, to really press him to confess. So they use it and he's like, okay, well, uh, you know, sometimes I follow these elk, right? And so when we hear things like that, we're like, chipmunks, elk, this guy's guilty, right? But what we have to understand is the tactics of the police to sort of confront him with a bunch of physical evidence that it turns out is, is, is not good at all. And I, and I think, you know, this may be why he's like, I wanna sue everybody. I mean, the, the, the types of physical evidence that were either mischaracterized or suppressed, like this DNA evidence of a sexual offender, I mean, that is some serious stuff. So, like, I totally agree. Like, it's never good for you to make uh, to make any statements. If you think you're exculpatory, they'll catch you in an inconsistency. But I also want to make clear that the reason why confessions or statements are such good evidence, right, like eyewitness identification, is that juries believe them in a way that doesn't always match up with the evidence on who's telling the truth. Um, very interesting points. And uh, I could do nine hours on this tonight, but it wouldn't be fair to the guests. So we'll keep it to the normal STS time. But uh Dr. G, I know I'm going to get yelled at. How come you're not letting Dr. G talk? So now I'm going to let Dr. G talk. And there's a question for you right here. Does Barry appear, by the way, real quickly, I'm like the, uh, the dopey guy. I'm not the lawyer. I'm not the uh, psychologist. 10,000%, I would say this guy is guilty if it were not for that DNA that was found that's linked to this guy that committed sexual assaults, which we're going to get into. Um Obviously, if you're the defense and this ever went to trial, you're going to try to muddy the waters as much as possible with that. But Dr. G, does Barry appear like a man who truly is innocent or does he appear to only want his name cleared in order to cover his involvement and take suspicion off of him? Just you can obviously answer the question. I'm curious, just your take and what you've read about him, the type of person that you believe him to be. So uh, rather than speaking to whether or not he's guilty or innocent, I can characterize some of the behavior I've seen from him. So, for example, the body cam footage when they found the bike, I don't know if how many people have watched that, but he doesn't seem particularly distraught. Does that mean that he killed his wife? Not necessarily. Maybe he just didn't care that she was missing or that she had had a, a bike accident, but he didn't seem... I work with a lot of people in a lot of distress. To me, his behavior during that was the first thing that made me say that he seems a little bit odd in this situation. Once again, that doesn't imply necessarily that he committed this murder, but it does imply that his emotions didn't match up with somebody who was upset or distressed that his wife was missing. In terms of the more recent interviews that I've seen with him, because I've just seen some clips of him talking with his daughters, uh, those there's, there's nothing that he says in those that I found particularly, for lack of a better term, suspicious. There's nothing that makes him appear to be lying specifically. I mean, he, he's uh, pretty straightforward. So there's nothing specifically about his behavior during the more recent stuff that has me saying, okay, that's something that we really need to look at in particular. Uh, Dr. G, uh, one of the things that strikes me about this case, the Corey Richens case, so many of these cases, um, how is it that reality is just really stranger than fiction? I mean, if I put all these things that we're going to go through right now about chipmunks and dart guns and, you know, sexual potential, sexual, pre I mean, how is it that reality is so much more absurd in a way? 
if you heard the things that I hear on a daily basis, you would, it, you don't even know. <laughs> it's really, I, I heard some of them because both my dad was a psychiatrist and my mom okay. was a therapist. I heard some of them, but uh, yeah. Know. So it, it, there's no shortage of how strange the world really is. And I think that now, particularly with social media and the way that we can talk about things like we are now is that we're able to look at so many different aspects of, of how strange all of this is, but yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly peculiar. And, uh, my one, one impression that I have of uh, Barry Morphew is that he does seem, and I don't mean this in like a diagnostic way, but he seems a little impulsive. He seems like somebody. So the idea that he would tell the story or come up with, well, maybe it was chipmunks that I was trying to shoot, or, or I think that's what he said, something to that effect. It, it's not entirely shocking with the way that he's he's acted and 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 other interviews. So, um, Tali is uh, checking us out from uh, Israel. She is a criminology student in Israel. Welcome to Tali. Uh, Lorna McKenzie right here, uh, Jeremy, the prosecution really messed up the case. Uh, speaking of that, the, uh, deputy district attorney came out, said there was no timetable for bringing a murder case to trial. And this is a direct quote. That could be a long time. It could be quick. It could be long. It depends on a lot of our investigation, but, um, Jeremy, to you, can you sort of pinpoint, um, the two or three things that this prosecution, according to you, really screwed up and how they dropped the ball so badly. Yeah. So first and foremost, uh, we have to go back to the beginning. When Suzanne Morphew and Barry Morphew and this case came about, um, there was a different, quote unquote, elected district attorney down in that jurisdiction. It was a woman by the name of Caitlin Turner. Uh, Caitlin Turner and her deputy district attorney, Ashley McEwig, um, had the case. They had decided not at that point to bring charges. Caitlin was a Democrat appointed by Jared Polis to take over a seat that had been left by the, um, by the district attorney who left midterm. Uh, Fremont County, Salida, very, the 11th Judicial District, in Colorado, very conservative, okay? Democrat is appointed by the, by the governor and she, she runs when it's time to, to run for election and she loses to the elected um, who, who won the case and took over the prosecution. One of the things that the elected now, the now elected, ran on was charging Barry Morphew. And so everybody's essentially saying, we don't have enough evidence. The FBI, Colorado Bureau investigation, uh, Fremont County, Garfield County, all the law enforcement agencies are saying, we don't have enough evidence, but we have this new prosecutor who has been who, in my opinion, has really no business um, taking this case. I think her last prosecutorial job was a municipal city attorney in a little town called Pueblo. Um, and she, But she runs for, for election on the idea that she's going to prosecute Barry Morphew when everybody in law enforcement is saying, well, hold up, don't do it, right? Because there's not enough but she decides to do it. And we have 
FBI agents and CBI agents who've been accused of essentially not being forthcoming with statements, not telling the truth on affidavits. We have not disclosing evidence. You know, there were sanctions because the prosecution's office was not turning over evidence that had to be turned over, right? We have a rule in criminal procedure called Rule 16, which requires in federal cases and in state cases for the prosecution to turn over evidence, and they weren't doing it. We have a missing body, right? We have the DNA of the um, alleged sex offender um, that they didn't initially turn over to the defense. It's one thing after another that the prosecution is in way over their head. They don't know what they're doing. And as a result, they literally dismiss the case. I, I don't think we can really fathom what it, what it takes for a prosecution to dismiss a first-degree murder case. I mean, there are times when prosecutions prosecutors aren't certain whether or not somebody did it or not, and they'll leave it up to the jury to determine that beyond a reasonable doubt, and they'll lose, right, if the evidence isn't there. This case has been screwed up so badly that the prosecution had to dismiss it, and they dismissed it on the eve, essentially, of the judge, Judge Lama, um, saying that he may suppress all the evidence in the case because the prosecution had bundled or had bungled the evidence so poorly. Interestingly enough, um, the judge who took over for Judge Lama, who just retired, is Caitlin Turner, the prosecutor who said she wasn't going to charge the case. Um, to that point, uh, Barry Morpheus and the, the, the case was essentially dropped nine days before he was supposed to go to trial for murder. Uh, his defense team had been pressing Judge Lama to impose severe sanctions on the prosecution for failing to turn over, uh, as I alluded to earlier, this potentially exculpatory evidence ahead of trial. Um, and he did impose these sanctions. He barred 11 of the state's 16 endorsed expert witnesses, uh, experts in DNA, vehicle data, cell phone data, analysts. Uh, and he did this as punishment for violating discovery rules. Uh, in all, the court excluded 14 of the prosecution's expert witnesses. Um, Aya, how common or uncommon is that? Sounds like it's not something that happens every day. And it sounds like um, and as they say in tennis, like an unforced error, like they just weren't handing over the discovery the way they should have been. You know, I think, um, you know, if, if, if I'm to look back on, I've read just thousands of pages on this case, um, how that ball got rolling was, I think there was an enormous amount of pressure on the police, the local police in Salida, right? The sheriff's department to make an arrest. And in that initial arrest affidavit, they just really, it, 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 if you've ever seen arrest affidavits for the FBI and then read this one, it's just not, doesn't look very professional. It's got a lot of sort of wild theories and filling in the blanks and extra things about Morphew. And I think that, um, you know, once that happened and you have this arrest affidavit that paints very Morphew as this monster who hunted his wife 
and then there were press releases. There's this pressure to go forward with this case and they weren't ready. They needed to get all that DNA tested. They needed to really in earnest look for a body. They needed to have more um, fruitful uh, interviews with Suzanne's lover, not as even as a suspect, but because he was an essential witness who could have filled in so many blanks of that day and they just let him get off without saying anything. So I think the main thing they could have done was waited. And instead what they did was go forward on, on theories based on not just a circumstantial case, but one that had a lot of holes in it and actively suppressed the evidence that would have pointed to other theories. And I think that's what got them in, in, in trouble now. I just think there was a lot of pressure on them and they sort of, um, you know, went full force without getting all their ducks in a row and without disclosing evidence. And that's what led to this pretty extraordinary suppression. You know, I could even imagine a, a dismissal at that point just because so much critical evidence was suppressed and, you know, it, it was very exculpatory and that's a huge violation of constitutional rights. Um, so yeah, I just think they really jumped the gun. Hmm. And uh, we're going to have the, uh, Dr. G explain these next two comments here. This one from Sonny, new here, but Suzanne is on my mind 24 seven. She deserves justice. Welcome by the way, Sonny. And I love the name Sonny. Uh, I'm an abuse survivor. I was uh, Suzanne, but I got out in time. My daughters are just realizing who their father is. Give the daughters time. She's saying that because the daughters are standing by Barry's side. Are you surprised by that uh, right now? And uh, I mean, the question implies that we would think he is uh, guilty. Um, but uh, what about the fact that both these daughters who are young adults um, are backing what one might be a teenager, but are backing the dad? That doesn't surprise me at all. And what an awful situation this is for them. They presumably have lost their mother. Uh, to, to Their father was taken away in the sense that they he, he was preparing to go on trial. Obviously, he didn't. So uh, I'm not even sure that, you know, they would allow themselves to... Cons I mean, obviously, I've, n I've never talked to them. I don't know how they feel about this, but I'm not sure that they would even allow themselves to consider. Most people probably wouldn't in this kind of situation, even if there had been uh, some... Uh, domestic violence history with the mother um, whether they knew about that or not uh, and whether that happened or not we don't know but it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all actually that's exactly what I would expect yeah um, and, and we've seen now we saw that with um, Chad Daybell the uh, Lori Vallow case that the children are standing by Chad even though he's facing uh, death the death penalty potentially Lorna McKenzie here says uh, Dr. G I think that's the reason Suzanne had the affair because she was so unhappy with Barry controlling her um, he was reported to be uh, a very controlling person. Is that a reason why people will oftentimes, um, you know, cheat on their spouses? I mean, he's a good looking guy. He was an athlete. I think he was a pro athlete for a short time. Um, went for a guy that you might not expect her to go for, but uh, is that uncommon? Not at all. The one thing that we see when people are in relationships, particularly ones with someone who is controlling is that there are different things that people do to try to feel more in control. And sometimes it's, affairs sometimes it has to do with how they choose to eat there's all sorts of ways that we do it but that's not an unusual way at all if that's uh if that's in fact true so mm. uh shout out to maui swift who's been a big supporter of the show from uh, almost day one and i feel like that overlooker and shout out to baby doll as well uh saying hello to johnny grusing 
Um, Jeremy, back to you. So there are all these things that we've talked about um, a little bit, these strange alibis and cues. One of them is uh, the chipmunk alibi that, so they did some forensic uh, work on the cell phones and the cell phone was buzzing around the house. When questioned about it, he said he was chasing uh, chipmunks. And then they find a tranquilizer, a plastic cap for a syringe that the state believes was used to load a tranquilizer dart into the couple dryer, which is why Aya said there might not have been any blood found um, of these two things. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you, the chipmunk thing made me kind of roll my eyes and say, this guy is, uh, you know, creating stories, but what, what do you make of it? You know, I mean, the chipmunk thing sounds dumb, yeah. But so does the fact that they're using ping data inside of a house. Yeah. Right. Like ping data is your cell phone pings off, pings off of a, of a, you know, a cell phone tower. And it's almost uh, prosecution was using junk science. Mm-hmm. Ping data is not necessarily junk science, but it's not going to necessarily pin somebody going through their house like that. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Like ping data is for, yeah, you can put somebody at a location, not necessarily an exact location, but a location within a place where there could be, you know, a cell phone tower and and things like that. So it's incredibly unreliable. Um, Probably also very unreliable that, you know, Barry Morphew is running or is going through his health house shooting chipmunks, right? I mean, that's also stupid. But with that being said, you know, they almost, it's just so nonsensical, both of them. And so it's really hard to, to counter, to counter the two different theories. The tranquilizer, that's, that's interesting. You know, there are a lot of reasons why an avid outdoorsman may have a tranquilizer, but it's far more likely that they have a shotgun shell or some kind of bullet than a tranquilizer, you know? So I think that is, is something really interesting. But on the flip side of that, if Barry Morphew is really as calculated as we, we suspect him to be, or, Law enforcement really suspects him to be, and the district attorney's office suspects him to be. Is he going to have just a tranquilizer cartridge that is something that was used uh, in Suzanne's disappearance and potential death so easily accessible and findable uh, to law enforcement? That just doesn't make sense either. I mean, if he did it, Right. In the words of OJ, if he did it, he he knew what he was doing and he's not going to leave things like the tranquilizer cartridge or packaging in his pocket. Right. That just doesn't make sense either. And because he really did think about everything if he was the person that did it. Yeah. So with this tranquilizer casing, for those who are not familiar um, it was found in a uh, in the couple's dryer, um, but Aya, there was no uh, DNA on it that linked back to Barry or anyone else for that matter. Uh, what about the fact that there's you know some 
I guess, circumstantial evidence, but no direct evidence really at all in this case uh, that we're seeing. How problematic is that? It's a hard case. I mean, there's so many twists and turns to this case. I think it makes total sense to me that the police would focus on Barry Morphew, and especially after hearing from Suzanne's friends that she was leaving him, that they had all this trouble, that they were in a really fraught relationship. And then even when they found out about the affair, you know, that's consistent with their theory that he's angry over the affair. So he killed him. And statistically, right, when you have homicides, you know, looking at domestic relations makes sense. That being said, every single piece of the circumstantial evidence has a two sides to the story part of it that makes it not even a very tight circumstantial case. So again, fingerprint, DNA, that kind of stuff that everyone's looking for with, with you know, airtight circumstantial evidence, it, it doesn't implicate Barry. And in fact, it may implicate other people. If you take something like, um, you know, the chipmunk theory, again, it's based on this ping evidence that's no good. And, I, you know, I kind of agree with Dr. G. I've, I've watched all of Barry's interviews and read their transcript. He is the type of guy who just spouts things out. Well, if it's this, it's that. If it's this, it's that. And, and what he said was, I sometimes hunt chipmunks. And he also did have a tranquilizer gun that he would use, and, and people attested to this, in illegal like gear hunting sometimes. The thing about the tranquilizer gun is when the police found it like back in a shed somewhere, it was broken. Um, that cap that was found in the dryer was like a hypodermic needle cap that was excluded with his DNA. It had some police DNA and some of the daughter's DNA. And like, we don't know what it could be. And it was also found eight days after a very exhaustive physical evidence search of the house. So again, it, it, so I'm not saying like, okay, this proves he's innocent. It's that every, you know, with a circumstantial case like this, there are all these links that have to add up to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And each of these links, it, it, you know, none of them are the one you go, well, that's it, right? Like they're all like these little links that have some issues with them. Um, Dr. G, both uh, Jeremy and I have talked about you know, tunnel vision, that's the word that a lot of people use. Have we become conditioned as a society to immediately believe it is the husband? Um, you know, a lot of what he says makes you scratch your head. Uh, and does that include investigators, do you think? You know, I, I just had Phil Waters on uh, for Surviving My Biggest Case, which is going to come out in a week or two. Um, he investigated over 400 homicides, and he's one of the best of the best. Um, and he says he always lets the scene tell the story let's the evidence speak to him but but do you think now number one in the court of public opinion are people leaning towards the husband always and are investigators maybe slipping into that slippery slope that's a great question i think hmm i mean i think that it's hard to say because with cases like this when you see like I said, when you look at the body cam footage, when you look at some of the early stuff, like I said, his his behavior is a little odd. So I think people I really think people base it more on what they're seeing. Like when you see him talk even now. I don't think people connect with him very well when they watch him talk about this, and I think that's a big problem for him. So I think that his the way he speaks, the way he presents has more to do with why people suspect him rather than just him being the husband. As far as investigators go, 
I mean, I think that they probably do make some mental shortcuts if that's what they see more often. I mean, I guess it doesn't happen that often in small small towns or in, in these counties, but I do think it makes a certain amount of sense, particularly given the context that that's where they would take things. But I don't know if there is a an implicit bias, so to speak, for the husband. Um, I think that, yeah, that you it, it, there probably is always the need to eliminate that, but I don't think people are going to go ahead and presume they actually did it unless there's something that makes them scratch their head about it. Yeah. Uh, not See, I, I always find that no matter how the husband reacts, it's all, I mean, if he cries too much, it's, he's too emotional. If he doesn't cry at all, he must have done it because he wasn't emotional enough. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a lose lose for the husband. I mean, well, it's, it's tough. And you know, th that's one of the tough, th tough things about seeing people in distress is yeah. How, what's the right way to act, right? Like we know, I don't think there's a right way to act, but sometimes we'll look at something and go, that feels like the wrong way to act, I think. And th that's what we tend to react to. That doesn't always mean that necessarily we're right about it. But um, you look at somebody like Alec Murdoch, when he, his, the way that he behaved, and I don't know how much you guys are familiar with his case, but the way he behaved when he was being questioned by police seemed way over the top and sort of weird. Um, you know, uh, but I do think that we can, whether we're trained to or not, we can get a feeling for whether or not somebody seems if something doesn't seem consistent we just sort of have a gut reaction to that that doesn't necessarily once like i said doesn't mean somebody's guilty but it means that there's something that we're not making sense of and we can pick up on that pretty quickly so uh, i uh, from gnp here the job site barry was going to did not allow permits for work on any weekends or holidays is do you, do you know that to be true i had not heard that uh, i mean i you know i i don't know that to be true or not um that's not a piece of evidence I've heard, but I mean, I could imagine that could be the case. STS Nation is usually on the ball. Chitty Chatty Meg, I like that name. Uh, he chased her down and shot her with a tranquilizer gun. He's an animal that might walk. Again, um, that is the perception or the belief that a lot of people do have. Uh, back to this spy pen, and people who have not heard about this case are probably going, what the hell are they talking about? But so a spy pen, uh, basically right out of a James Bond movie, um, it was able to capture and record conversations, and it happened uh, to capture and record a conversation between Suzanne Morphew and a man she was having an affair with, I believe, from Michigan. He was a married guy uh, with six kids. Um, I have My first question is, do we know why there was a spy pen in the house to begin with? Who did it belong to and why? Yeah, we do. And, and I want to say one thing about just the comment. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that really did color the perception in this case is almost immediately after that police affidavit came out, um, the newspaper ran a headline, Barry Morphew um, hunted uh, Suzanne Morphew with a tranquilizer gun like an animal, right? Like, and so that I think is a very, um, you know, that that's going to be the type of headline that, that, that colors a perception because not only is it you know sort of this horrific murder but also like my god if he's hunting her like a chipmunk that's like another level of horror okay so the spy pen <laughs> the spy pen it, it, in this very sort of odd twist um you know Suzanne was having this wild and passionate and 
and pretty amazing affair with Jeff Libler, where they would meet all over the world. And, you know, he has six kids and he's kind of telling her he's going to run away to Ecuador to marry her, but telling his wife with the six kids, no, no, honey, everything's fine, right? Um, and, but at the same time where she's having this affair, she was incredibly um, worried, it seems, according to her friends or convinced, that Barry was having an affair. Um, and, you know, so the so a friend of hers, I think it was both sort of this worry that Barry was having an affair or also just maybe wanting to catch, uh, you know, Barry say, saying some things, you know, but to, to aid in her leaving Barry. The friend gives her this spy pen that looks like a normal pen, but it's really recording everything. And then it has a little USB and you plug it in and you can get the recordings. And, and, and during the search of the house after her disappearance, they find this spy pen. And a lot of the recordings are um, deleted, but they, you know, what they found is even though the spy pen, you know, she had put in Barry's car and and one of the things that came to light in the affidavit was he was listening to true crime podcasts and therefore he was probably like planning a murder um but you know amongst the things that caught that was one of them but it also caught a lot of conversations that she was having with a man named jeff so it was this spy pen that revealed to the police six months after their investigation had commenced that there was this other man out there named jeff and uh, as I had just mentioned, it took investigators six months to identify this guy, Jeff. He did have a wife and six children. No idea if he's still married or not. Um, and uh, he never came forward on his own, which is understandable because he got caught in a trap, uh, a married guy with six kids. But he did cooperate uh, once, uh, you know, investigators did come knocking on his door. He gave up his DNA, his phone records. And uh, I, I believe he was cleared. Um, they were able to verify um, an alibi. Um, this comment, Dr. G, made me think of you right away from Yin Yang. Money will bring Barry down in the end, um, assuming for a moment that he is guilty, just making the hypothetical assumption. Sure. Uh, what kind of hubris would it be for him to now be suing um, all these you know, state entities here? I mean that wouldn't surprise me. I don't. I don't think that him suing them implies innocence by any stretch. You know, so if if someone was guilty of this crime, it wouldn't surprise me that they would follow up to show uh, that you'd have to be pretty grandiose to commit this kind of crime in the first place. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to go and try to sue a lot of people following that. That doesn't. Once again, I don't think that implies his guilt or innocence. The fact that he's doing that, but um, it wouldn't surprise me that someone that is guilty would would follow up and try to do something like this. Uh, I, I just want to add that I, I don't know how he's going to get around governmental immunity. And so, and, and I have, you know, I mean, yeah, he, he sued immediately after Colorado passed a state, you know, law that um, got rid of qualified immunity on state constitutional claims. So I think they're hoping for that. They have filed the federal which, I mean, I guess they're just going to argue that it was clearly established unconstitutional, but they did it like right after that, that law went into effect. I still think there there's a qualified immunity for like the prosecutors and things like, I mean, they've sued essentially everybody. And what, when they, they talk about money bringing Barry down, if they go and get summary judgments against Barry Morphew, 
um, for bringing essentially claims that he could not have brought, they can have their attorney's fees awarded against Morphew and so and their costs. So I think um, Mr. Morphew on not just a criminal side, but from a personal and financial side is making a very, very huge mistake. You know, sometimes it's better to ride off into the sunset with your victory, right? If he did it or if he didn't do it, he was cleared of essentially, not cleared, but he's not being prosecuted for murder charges. The reason why we're essentially talking about this case again is potentially because of this lawsuit, because the case closed almost a year ago or more than a year ago. But now we have the lawsuit. Now we have, as a result of the lawsuit, the um, the prosecutor saying that the bodies, we're going to find the body. We don't want to dismiss with prejudice. You know, I think uh, the the listener who said money will bring him down, that very well may be true. Because so, we're talking about it again now when the case hasn't been talked about for months. Very interesting point, Dr. G. So, so something I want you to keep in mind also is that, and once again, I don't know if he's actually controlling or not. Let's just assume that he is a controlling guy. You're going to make decisions against your best interest to feel in control. And that's one of the problems a lot of criminals struggle with this is they need that control. They commit acts like murder because they want control over that person because they're going to leave or whatever it is. So, you know, if he in fact was guilty of this and then followed it up by doing something against his best interest, it wouldn't be entirely shocking because that is definitely a move to, to regain control for sure. So. You know, we're smart people. We can look at any of these moves as consistent with guilt and consistent with innocent based on the story you sure. mm-hmm. tell, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I always say whatever lawyer says, I tend to believe. I don't know why, because it should be the exact opposite, but uh, you yeah. guys are generally good at, <laughs> at persuading people. Um, Kara Cow Young says uh, the DNA were only partial matches, did not meet standards. That is correct, Aya? So partial match isn't... You know, I'm not a DNA expert. I'm obviously not a DNA scientist, but the the whole idea of like a a partial DNA profile, I think that's what what maybe they mean. They were only partial DNA profiles. And, you know, there is a certain level at which when you put the profile into codex, it has to meet before it says it's a hit, it's a positive hit. And it met it, you know, I mean, could some DNA expert come in and say like, well, you know, there's a question of whether that, that hit, how, how accurate it is. Yes. Um, but, but again, you know, the prosecution is then in the position of proving that the codex hit is not a good hit, right? They're usually in the position of saying, okay, the codex hit on this defendant, it's a good hit. Um, so it's true. I don't think that that piece of DNA evidence, and, and what I'm talking about is they found DNA evidence in the glove compartment of Suzanne's car. And that's what hit to the, uh, to these open sex offense cases. And then they called up the Arizona police and it turns out they had actually arrested somebody. Um, is, is this guy, sorry to interrupt, but is this guy in custody right now? Is he serving time for this? You know, I haven't followed it up since we did the 48 hours episode, but the the last I had heard was they had the 
police, uh, the Salida police, or maybe it was the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, one of the detectives had followed it up to a name, right? And um, they had contacted or attempted to contact that person and that person had responded that he had a lawyer and you couldn't contact him. And that's the last I heard about an actual person being linked to those cold, you know, cold sexual assault cases that match that hit. But again, you know, none of this proves that Barry didn't do it. It just, you know, there was a DNA of somebody else who matched in the, you know, a partial profile, yes, that matched in codex to this, you know, these various sexual assault cases. That's, that's a wild piece of evidence just to keep under wraps. You know, there were also, there was also unidentified male DNA all over the bike and helmet, right? Like all over the scene that didn't match up to any of the people who they identified as being at the scene, the detectives and other people there, they had done elimination samples. So it's, it's not to say that this couldn't all be true and Barry Morphew did it. It's just that like, here are all these DNA pieces of evidence pointing to other people. And yeah, you could say they're not perfect, but they're definitely something. Uh, a little while ago, Jeremy mentioned O.J. Simpson. This comment reminds me exactly that. Dr. G, it's for you from Manushka. Uh, Barry's not trying to find his wife or anyone else who could have done anything. O.J. really wasn't looking too hard afterwards either. Uh, he's not seeking justice for his wife. Um, to be fair, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I guess the uh, overall impression is that he's not working too hard to try to locate her. Um, is that just the product of a bad marriage, or is that a person who may... Uh, know why he does not need to look for her it's, it's a good question i think it's a fair question when somebody asks well why at least does he not appear to be working harder we don't you know like you said we don't really know what he is and isn't doing but if for argument's sake he isn't uh doing a lot of legwork to try to find her yeah that that doesn't necessarily mean that he killed her it might just mean that he you know is is not incredibly motivated to find her <laughs> that's possible too he was also sitting in custody for a long time yeah, I mean, no. he did put out a $100,000 reward and went on YouTube and did the whole rounds in the beginning, which, of course, again, if you believe he's innocent, well, it's because he's innocent. If you believe he's guilty, it's because he's guilty. Yeah, it is, it is a very – my wife and I always joke about this, but there's, it, there is no way for a, a husband to win. Jeremy, you were going to say something. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I, I just think that, like, it's he, – he was sitting in custody, and then he was charged, like – if, if I were, and he's the most hated man in a small mountain town, right? Like, <laughs> we're not talking about getting lost in Manhattan here. Like, this is a town of maybe 10,000 people in the peak season of summer and the peak season of winter. I mean, it, it's not like he can go, I mean, he, he was really a man that even when he was out of jail was essentially kind of trapped in his own kind of world because it's just a really bad situation. Yeah. All around. Um, this is interesting too, from LS, uh, Barry Morphew has a hunter mindset. He's an avid hunter. Um, Dr. G, does that, does that change? You know, if you're in the hunters, I know a lot of them are alpha males and I don't want to stereotype, but that's just the case. Um, mm-hmm. is there something to be said about the psychological makeup, to use that word with you about being a hunter that could propel you 
to, to potentially commit a heinous crime or does it have nothing to do? There are a lot of hunters that don't. I, I would, I would find that very unlikely <laughs> that those are related, <laughs> honestly. So probably not. All right. Glad you cleared that up. Um, what about this, Jeremy, back to you at the time, it seems like the state prosecutors were rather intimidated by Barry's very expensive, high powered uh, lawyers. Your thoughts, Jeremy. You know, I, I talked about this a little bit before, the prosecution, the prosecutor, the state's attorney, um, was Linda Stanley, right? So Linda Stanley, I've known her. Um, she was a Pueblo County prosecutor, and then was kind of something happened. She was no longer there. Then she went as a um, Pueblo City attorney, where she was prosecuting very low-level traffic offenses. At some point, she opened up. Or at some point, she went to um, to be a DMV administrative judge, which essentially she's hearing license revocations for some people that have too many points. And then she um, opened up her own practice where she was reprimanded by the Supreme Court. And then this opportunity came to run as a Republican um, in a very conservative district against an incumbent Democrat. And she she won the election, not by a not by a huge number, you know. And I think in a jurisdiction where uh, President Trump got, I think somewhere close to seventy percent of the vote, she got fifty five percent. So it was not a, a huge number, but she is just outmatched. And what where things really went down is. She had brought on a prosecutor by the name of Jeff Lindsay. Jeff Lindsay is a prosecutor who's been in um, Colorado Springs, which is a fair, a, a much larger metropolitan area. And then he'd gone down to Pueblo when we had a regime change at the prosecutor's office in, in Colorado Springs. And Jeff was really um, somebody who could handle this case. Jeff is a very experienced prosecutor. Uh, I've gone up against Jeff Lindsay on uh, some high profile cases. He knows what he's doing. He's good. He left that office, I think, when he realized how inept uh, Linda Stanley was um, and he wanted nothing to do with it. And then she was really flying, you know, with a very low budget, um, a very difficult time finding prosecutors to even prosecute the case. And then we have Iris Eton, who is one of the top attorneys in the state of Colorado prosecuting, or I'm sorry, defending some of the highest profile cases. I think her firm um, many years ago was the same firm that defended Kobe Bryant when he was charged uh, out in Colorado with a crime. We're, and um, was the same firm, I think it's Haddon Morgan, uh, who... Um, who's the woman who was prosecuted in New York? Jeffrey Epstein. Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell, yeah. Ghislaine Maxwell, same firm that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell hired and um, Jeff Pagliuca was flying to New York and defending her. So this is a firm uh, who knows what they're doing. They're very good defense attorneys. They have the resources. If you can afford to hire the firm, um, you can afford to put on a good defense. And so, you know, I, I know I'm being long-winded here, but there are so many 
it's not even it's not even it's checks chess first checkers. I can't say that enough. Like they're just smarter, you know. There's good surgeons and there's bad surgeons. There's good lawyers and there's bad lawyers. And this is one of the best lawyers that money can buy against somebody who was hearing, you know, speeding tickets yeah. for the state. And Barry's got the, uh, he has the resources. His business was doing well, according to all accounts. Um, I had a you, and then we'll get to this comment for Dr. G. So on May 9th, which was the day before Mother's Day, uh, records, phone records show that Suzanne Morphew and uh, the man she was having an affair with, that they messaged each other 59 times. Um, she took what investigators called a last proof of life selfie. Uh, Barry that day was out running errands and he sent her a text basically saying, did you leave? Uh, she's met, uh, he's met with silence from her. Um, then the question kind of arises, did, did Barry even know about this affair? Um, and my bigger question to you is how does this affair complicate um, his defense um, and does it help the state? Yeah, honestly, I, I don't think he knew about the affair. Um, it's, it's just not, I think we would have more explosive evidence between them and, and the children and people. And, and again, from the time they found that there, a Jeff existed, it took the FBI six months to figure out that it was Jeff Libler. It, it was, it was a very well hidden affair. Now, that being said, there is some evidence that, you know, they were accusing each other of cheating, that he, you know, it was, if, if you want to use the, the affair to show that he had some jealousy and they didn't have a good relationship, I think that that there is evidence of that, that there was jealousy on both sides. They didn't have a good relationship. I don't necessarily think he, he knew about Libler. What I find really interesting about that whole series of events, because May 9th is the day before she officially goes missing, but that's the day she's theorized to have been murdered. And the theory is that, you know, sh she was essentially sexting uh, the, her lover, yeah. right? They, they There's pretty clear evidence that they went on WhatsApp and, and you know, engaged in, in, in intimate acts. So the theory is that um, Barry came home and maybe even caught them in this act and then in a fit yeah. of rage chased around, killed her. Um, although I don't know how consistent that is with the like perfectly planned out murder, but right. That's one of the theories going around. It's really interesting though, that there's some physical evidence that is, that, that complicates the matter. One is after the time of the quote unquote proof of life and him saying, Oh, I'm coming home. Barry saying I'm coming home. Uh, Jeff actually did text or, or WhatsApp or one of those apps to Suzanne and say, you know, basically my crew is home, uh, his family, so we have to stop communications. Yeah. Um, and then there's also some evidence that her, her phone was being used and the computer was being used later in the night. So it, there's interesting evidence here. And, and here's the point I want to make. I, I, it's hard for me to believe that Jeff Libler has nothing to add about what happened between about 2.30 on May 9th and the rest of the day. And, mm -hmm. and I just wonder, like, has that been asked? What did he say? You that's, know? A great, that's a great point. Yeah. And there, we don't there's know. Also, sorry. sorry. No, go what ahead. I, go something ahead. else that I has said that's important is we talk about the evidence there is, but we also don't talk about the evidence there's not, right? Mm -hmm. There's no 
blood spatter, like in the house. If he's running around, there's no GSR that they found. And that would, I mean, if you shoot a gun in a house or anything like that, there's going to be evidence of that um, all over the place. Like, gun however, however there is, uh, which I was getting to next, but since you brought it up, there, there are signs of a possible struggle. There were scratch marks found on Barry. Uh, he was asked about it. Um, they sh and then the uh, the door in the master bedroom had a, a vertical crack along the door frame. And Barry's response to that is, I have no idea what the crack is from. Um, if you're presuming that maybe a tranquilizer dart was used, Jeremy, then there, there wouldn't be blood splat uh, splatter. Sure. But right. But there could be scratches on Barry, which there were. So um, I don't know. Does that. It's complicated, right? I mean, how do you... <laughs> I mean, you guys do true crime. There there have been cases where the crime scene, like they don't find a lot of physical evidence and then the person ends up confessing or some video turns up. So it's it's not impossible, right? Like to have a fairly pristine crime scene and, and a murder occurred there. It's just, you know, again, it's less likely. Yeah. Um, so we talked about this already and then we'll move forward. Just so there was DNA on the glove box of Suzanne's uh, Range Rover, everyone's yelling at me to say that they were partial profiles, so I will reiterate that. And then there was some forensic evidence from Barry's truck. Um, he said that he went to bed around 8 p.m. This is the day that the murder is presumed to have happened, the day before Mother's Day on May 9th, which is, by the way, my dog Ethel Bug Johnson's birthday. But uh, anyway, I digress for a moment. Uh, but his truck's computer shows the truck um, was put in reverse and backed up towards the house around 9.30 p.m. So he said he went to bed, but forensic digital forensics shows uh, 9.30 p.m. is when he backed the truck up. Jeremy, how problematic is that for the defense? You know, it's obviously not a great fact if you're, you're putting the truck in reverse and potentially throwing a body in the back of it right after something happens. Um, but again, you know, Obviously, as a defense attorney, you want somebody to keep their mouth shut, say nothing. And so when, you know, you hear this down the road, the truck was in reverse. There is some kind of logical explanation as opposed to, I don't know, I was sleeping. I don't know how my truck magically went into reverse. With that being said, these are just small little inconsistencies. The truth is, if we had a better prosecutor, if we if we had better lawyers, maybe it, it adds up to enough to make a conviction and bring and bring Suzanne Morphew's killer to justice. Right. But we don't have that. And, and so it's really I would hate that fact. I would hate the fact that somebody said they went to bed and they were sleeping. And all of a sudden we have, you know, evidence that the truck was going in reverse. But the problem is, is that putting a case together is like putting a, a puzzle together. You can put together enough pieces to get the picture, and that's great. But if you don't have people that are smart enough to put the pieces together, then, then you're not going to get a conviction. I have a feeling that if we had your listeners prosecuting this case, we would have had a conviction. But that's not what we have here. Yeah, STS Nation, they will convict. These guys know the law, too, and most of them are not attorneys, as far as I know. Uh, Dr. G, and we'll start to wrap up in a moment. Uh, what do you think about Barry's 28-second video for Suzanne's return? Uh, this is what I was talking about a little while ago. You can Google this and see it. 
Um, and he says, oh, Suzanne, whoever has you. Uh, he didn't seem um, overly emphatic. Let's put it that way. Would you, how do you read into it? It's so, so as someone myself who has ADHD, it's, it's a near constant struggle not to say something stupid <laughs> constantly. So when I see something like this, I'm like, is he impulsive and just doesn't think through what he's going to say? I mean, I, I do wonder because, you know, I didn't necessarily read that as a sign of guilt, but just as a sign of someone who talks off the cuff too much. Um, and maybe that's exactly what he wanted to say or somebody who has big ideas that just don't pan out that well. So I thought it was strange, but I didn't necessarily think that implicated his guilt. And Dr. G, right back to you with Ashley. I thought Barry seemed very odd on the body cam. He never asked law enforcement any questions, just started uh, railing off reasons not to look at him. Uh, you talked about that a little bit. Care to expound on it a tiny bit? Yeah, sh sure. I mean, he just... Yeah, describing him as very odd, I, th I think, is fair because presumably if his wife's bike had been found and her body was not there, something problematic likely happened and he just didn't seem very connected to that fact. Was he in denial that something was going on? I guess that's also possible, but it just, yeah, it was not very consistent with how many of us presume we would feel if someone that we loved and cared about was missing or potentially hurt or something like that, so... This comment from Baby Doll, I, did, I never heard this. If this is true, this is funny. Barry is so delusional that when they arrested him, he told Grusing, I thought we were friends. Um, no idea if she's being sarcastic. I think she is. No, I, I believe I believe that. I think that I think I remember that. Really? But what we have to also keep in mind is that the detectives went over and he made dinner for them because they were going over to pray with him. And when they prayed with him, they also were recording everything, right? Like, so, they, you know, maybe, yes, it, it could be delusion. Like, he couldn't imagine that they would suspect him. Um, but it was also that that was part of a policing tactic, for better or ill, was, you know, to act like his friend. Hmm. It's the yeah. mutton Jeff, right? The mutton. Yeah. or the Jeff part. I don't know. Can, can I say one thing about uh, Special Agent Grushing? Because I saw him, I've watched his interrogation of Letitia Stauk, and he is really awesome for anybody who has never like watched him work. Like he's, he's, really, he's, he's fantastic. He really is, yeah. So yeah. I, could, I could see people feeling connected to him that have, have met him because he just has this, an energy about him. He's so uh, measured and smart and, and uh, just very calm and calm under pressure. Um, yeah. and he's did you guys cover the Stout case? Uh, we did not on our show. Wow. I was yelled at plenty for that, but uh, yeah, we need to. Um, probably a little too late for that now. Um, yeah. Um, no, but we should, and we will maybe in the future. A uh, couple qu real quick things here. So Aya, back to you. Um, multiple trash runs. Barry's seen jumping around from uh, dumpster to dumpster to dumpster. Another bad fact. He says that he wanted to avoid paying landfill fees. Um problematic again i mean I, I mean there's just so much like I, I think one of your listeners said he's creepy I, there's just so much that's creepy right like this the whole chipmunks thing and the tranquilizing deers and the bucks and the elks and then the trash runs and everything he's creepy right and the fact that he left early in the morning and then there's even camera footage of him like stopping in like a parking lot across from a fast food restaurant and going into their dumpster and it looks guilty as sin, right? I mean, it, like when you paint that picture, it's like, it looks guilty as sin. Again, however, there are always little things like they did search all the trash dumpsters and it was trash. 
Um, they did, you know, check the bed of his truck, swabbed it for blood, DNA, nothing, right? Like, so you have a bunch of really creepy looking, really suspicious looking things. Do they add up to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Or is it just sort of a confluence of creepy guy, but didn't kill his wife, right? Yeah, and it's a that's a very fine line, I guess, amongst many men. Um, creepy or killer? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we'll find out in due time. For those who do not know, and he's certainly not creepy. This guy's smart. Jeremy Lowe is a pleasure to have him on the show. He is a former Colorado State public defender, turned Colorado Springs criminal defense attorney, um, and prior to his legal practice, as we heard, he worked in politics not for one but for two United States uh, presidents. Um, there are allegations uh, by the state, I guess, um, or evidence that they suggest points to the fact that the uh, scene was staged. Uh, Jeremy, what do you make of that, if anything, in your final thoughts? You know, I, I think that anything is obviously possible. I think that it's not like you can mail order sex offender DNA, right? That There's no website for that the the there might be <laughs> i mean at least i would hope not, not. <laughs> it might be in, in korea um. Right. um or you know the bike perfectly placed and and the, the you you would want to think that you know even as a defense attorney i try and think the best of people and to perfectly stage something it, it just seems really 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 um, hard to fathom, but I guess as we've discussed earlier, anything's really possible. We people are out of their minds and just getting crazier every day. So maybe somebody's calculated enough to order, you know, sex offender DNA or talk to somebody and plan their spouse's murder in such a calculated way. Um, but then on the flip side, are they really going to make so many stupid mistakes like uh, Barry Morphew did by going to the trash with a bunch of different bags, backing, not knowing about the vehicle data, you know, not remembering that he backed up. A, it just there's too many things that are mistakes that make it so if he was that calculated to set up the perfect crime scene that he would have done better on little other aspects too. Dr. G, I think I asked you this last time and Jeremy just brought it up. Is the world getting crazier? Are people getting stranger or is it just our perception and has it always been a weird place? I think the world's always been a violent and dangerous place. I think the way we behave maybe is a little overtly stranger than it used to be, but otherwise I think that, you know, uh, well, and, and people are getting a little bit more isolated. So there are aspects of the world that are getting a little weirder, but I don't think that the crimes are, are changing a whole lot. Um, maybe just the package they come in. Um, and there were some troubling texts between uh, Suzanne and her friend. She wrote to her friend, I feel no peace when he's here. I would not feel safe alone with him. Uh, he won't speak of divorce. I'm done. I could care less what you're up to and have been for years. She writes, she texted to Barry. We just need to figure this out um, civilly. For those who do not know, Dr. G, uh, J.P. Garrison is an all-around great guy, uh, now a friend of the show. Love when he's on here. He has his YouTube channel, Dr. G Explains. Um, what is Dr. G's option on the suspect's 
personality? Do you have a personality profile for whoever did this? It's, it's tough. You know, um, it, so much of the information we know about his personality or, or claims are like if the, with the text that we're finding now and things that we're hearing so much of it is through like uh, people texting each other and so much awful things are said to each other through text and so many fa- it's so hard to glean whether or not uh, you can gauge a whole lot about his personality based on those things so it's it's hard to say right if, if he's a controlling guy then that's obviously very concerning if he has been abusive if that's in fact true that also lends credence to a very concerning personality profile um, but I think there's still so much that is unconfirmed at this point at least to the best of my knowledge and that makes it a little hard no one's got a better voice than Dr. G. Wendy B. Became a YouTube member. Thank you, Wendy B. Um, big shout out. Question. Does anybody think we find the body? <laughs> we're, we're about to get there. I don't know. Um, I, I to, For full disclosure, I just don't know enough about the case. I mean, it sounds like it's in a remote area, but I interviewed Johnny Grusing about the Scott Kimball serial killer, which happened in Colorado, and they found bodies in the most remote places imaginable in utah and colorado so it is possible i don't know um but i mean to to jeremy's point aya and ann room's comment here if the state does discover suzanne's body um is it game back on vis-a-vis barry as she is suggesting Uh, you know i i I think it depends i i kind of hope they find a body and hope that the body's in a condition to give us some answers um you know, because it would be nice for for there to be closure and, and justice and not the risk that, you know, it, it, it's not him and he's getting convicted or that he did it and he's going away, but going away in jail. But I just don't know, A, if they're going to find the body or B, if it's going to give us any answers, given that the condition it it might be in. Hey, am I allowed to use my little bit of time to ask Dr. G a question? 100%. 100%. Okay. Because a lot of people ask me since I've read all the documents, like, do I think he did it? And, you know, at first I was like a statistical thinker, like it's usually the husband, and especially if it's fraud. So he probably did it. And the crime scene was clean. Well, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Then when his daughters sort of, um, you know, were standing by him, I thought to myself, well, the daughters were insistent. There was never any history of abuse. Blah, blah, blah. So maybe, you know, maybe it was somebody, uh, you know, a sex offender or a group of people who nabbed her and and maybe raped her in the woods and, and they ditched her body. Right. Um, but then there was something really interesting that just in rereading the documents I, I saw. And when she writes him that, you know, I, I'm seriously done, you know, no more of this. I want a divorce. You know, of course, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to kill you like that would be, you know, super. super right. But what he does say is something along the lines of, you know, I'm going to be with the Lord soon. I'm going to kill myself, right? Like when that happens, I'm going to kill myself. And to me, like, especially like men with guns, with accidents and guns, that whole suicide, you know, and, and in love when they're emotionally overwrought, mm-hmm. the suicide homicide thing, isn't that far apart? And I had missed that. I had missed the suicidal ideation and, Am I making a bigger deal of that than it is? No, and I won't just because I haven't actually I haven't seen that that myself. But what I can say with couples that I work with where this is thrown around because this is not uncommon for people to go like, fine, if you're going to leave or whatever, like I just might as well kill myself. Or when people get drunk, they say these kinds of things. Oftentimes that that 
would implicate a, a controlling personality that they feel out of control and they go fine well i've got you know that's that's sort of a trump card right now which is that fine if if you're gonna leave then i'll you know kill myself how do you feel about that so it's it's not unusual to see people that are controlling to use that kind of language mm. uh by the way uh they talked about suzanne and her uh that man she's having an affair with talked about running away to Ecuador in this comment. Could she be in Ecuador? Um, I, my, I'm no psychologist and I'm no lawyer, but my answer to that is no way. Cause she wouldn't leave her daughters. Um, yeah. For those who do not know, uh, Aya Gruber, she's an expert on criminal law and procedure, violence against women and critical theory. Uh, before joining the USC Gould school of law, she taught at the university of Colorado, which is how she's sort of connected to this case. She was just featured on 48 Hours about the Suzanne Morphew case. Uh, Aya, while I have you, STS Nation, uh, we are drumming up uh, noise about a case out of Philly, which I would love for you to look at. Ellen Greenberg, if you haven't heard about it, uh, we did it this week, and I can send you a link. She was found dead back in 2011. She was stabbed 20 times, 10 to the front, 10 to the back of her head and the back of her neck. Um, she was engaged at the time. Uh a independent autopsy found that two of the stab wounds came after she had died and uh, it was ruled a homicide quickly changed to undetermined and then switched to a suicide. Uh, the fiance's family uh, is very high up in the, uh, in the Philadelphia sort of uh, world of uh, celebrity and uh, high up in the, in the, in the, legal profession in that city. And I'd love for you to take a look at it. Uh, Josh and Sandy Greenberg um, have been on the show. We're going to do another show about this next week, but I'd love to get legal minds like yourself and Jeremy looking at that case to try to help get her some justice. So uh, please do look at if you can. Quick, quick programming note tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Great Scott. It's your true crime fill with former FBI agent Scott Duffy and Detective Phil Waters. And then listen to this, everyone. Sunday, call to come back. She's coming back, and we're doing a noon live to accommodate Carm, who is in the Holy Land, uh, hanging out there for the summer. Uh, but she's going to come on, and we are doing the show about another story that I know Aya would be interested in now that she's at USC. There's a guy named Brett Cantor. Google him. He was a rising music executive. He was murdered back in 1993 at the age of 25. He was stabbed something like 22 times. The case is still open, and we have the lead investigator uh, from the LAPD uh, coming on to discuss that case Sunday at noon, uh, a cold case that they're hoping to warm up. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Georgia. Of course, we love you, Colorado. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel 
So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.